If you've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, probably the most famous sermon in the history of the world, three chapters uh, in the book of Matthew, Matthew uh, 5, 6, and 7, and the section that we're in is Jesus showing how he, him, showing up, this king of kings, coming in with his kingdom, is not here to overthrow everything that has come before. He's not here to do away with all that has come before him with his brand new kingdom. Rather, everything that has come before is pointing to him. So we looked a few weeks ago at this kind of foundational statement. I have not come, he says, to overthrow the law, to abolish the law, rather to fulfill it. And for the rest of chapter 5, week after week after week, we've been walking through examples of how he's not here overturning the law. Rather, he's showing the true intent, the true meaning behind the law that God gave. So we saw Carl a few weeks ago talk about murder and that God doesn't just want you not killing each other. He is a fan of you not killing each other. Don't misunderstand me. But what he's really after is the hate here that leads to the murder, the sin that's right here that leads to the murder. He's not just after you not committing adultery. What he's really after is the lust here that brews up and overflows into adultery. God's about the heart, not just you not breaking a rule. And today we're going to come to the next example he's going to give, which is divorce. Divorce. Two verses, probably the shortest sermon preached in a long time, uh, verse-wise, that I would imagine, the reason why we, we, we limited this to these two verses and not more, passage, I would would imagine this subject affects almost everybody in this room. If I were to ask for a show of hands, I'm not, but if I were to ask for a show of hands who has been divorced, who has been the child of uh, divorce, who's comforted a close friend in the midst of divorce, I would imagine every hand in this room would go up. And so there's a very real chance and danger that every word preached can wound unnecessarily in shame. And so I want to start this sermon where we ended the last sermon by a well in Samaria in John 4 when a woman who had not one, two, three, or four, five divorces and was living with a man who wasn't her husband, right? So I guess on her way to number six is so caught up in shame. She feels the scarlet letter that maybe many of you feel burning here. She doesn't go out to draw water when anyone else is there in the cool of the day. She waits till it's hot so that she's alone. She doesn't have to face anybody. And this time, she does accidentally bump in to a merciful Jesus who says, I know. I know about the first. I know about the fifth. I know about the sixth that's happening right now. Here's what you need to do. Come to me. And I will give you a drink that will satisfy you. You'll never, you'll never go thirsty Again, come to me. And we looked at the result. She fled, sprinted into the city saying, I think I found the Messiah. I think I found the guy who's told me everything I've ever done. And all of a sudden that shame, that scarlet A has turned into a golden J, if I want to get cheesy with it. Just joy bursting from her heart. So look at me. I want you to hear this sermon at the feet of that Savior. You hear me? There is going to be so much shame coming your way that probably people have, maybe even in a church building after a divorce, you, you know, people kind of turn their shoulders away and you just feel it. They, they, know, they know I've done it. And please hear me that your Savior has no such foolishness stirring in his heart. He's the one that says, come, I already know and I've already paid for it. So please hear 
the Savior preaching here in Matthew 5. It's the same Savior from John 4. He's the one who says, there's no scarlet letters here. With me, you're whiter than snow. So if you have not repented and you feel a sting, that's often what the Spirit's conviction feels like, right? We see in Peter preaching in Acts 2, they're cut to the heart, this idea of like, ah, okay, what must I do to be saved? They cry out. Maybe you haven't repented, and that's actually the Spirit, but you should not feel shame for forgiven sin. Don't misunderstand those two, okay? So hear this sermon at the feet of that Savior. We're going to go, uh, we're going to look at four, not three, four things today. Oh, my goodness. Uh, number one, God's heart for marriage. Number two, the breaking of marriage, divorce. Number three, Jesus' answer for broken marriage. And number four, Jesus' redemption of broken marriage. So God's heart for marriage, the breaking of marriage, Jesus' answer for broken marriage, and Jesus' redemption for broken marriage. But look at verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits Adultery. So you see the pattern again. Jesus is showing the true intent of the law. So the first thing he's going to do, just like he's been doing with lust and murder, adultery and murder, is show the law. It was said, whoever divorces his wife, let, her give, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's Deuteronomy 24. We're going to look at that here in a second. He's almost directly quoting it. And then the true intent of the law, verse 32, I say, I say, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now, in order to understand what in the world he is talking about, we've got to go backwards. We've got to look at, look at the past. We've got to go all the way back, in fact, uh, to Genesis 1, because we need to see, in order to understand Jesus' commentary on divorce, we need to see the origins of divorce. And in order to see the origins of divorce, we have to see the origins of marriage. So go back with me to Genesis one, the very beginning. So uh, if you're flipping through your Bibles, it's page one. Uh, so God creates. He says, let there be light. There is, there's just God and there's nothing else. And God speaks creation into being. The heavens, the earth, the waters, the skies, the land, the birds, the fish, the animals. And then the crescendo of his creation is Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So there's kind of the crescendo of chapter one. I'm making all these things. God is making all these things and then says, let us, plural, uh, Trinity, hint, uh, let us make man in our image, male and female in our image to rule over all of this creation. And the Genesis 2 kind of zooms in a little bit to this creation account and we see God scooping up dirt, forming it you know, this, with his own, his own hands. God doesn't have hands, but this picture of just intimacy and breathing life into Adam, and Adam is made, and then this whole time, everything in his good creation, good, good, very good, 
And then we finally see the first thing that is not good. Pre-fall, before Genesis 3, before sin, that's not good in all of God's creation. And it is that man is alone. That man is alone. Look at Genesis 2, verse 18. Then the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone, and I will make him a helper fit for him. Now the ground that the Lord God had formed, every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living, thing, every living creature, that was its name. And the man gave all the livestock and all the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. For Adam there was, uh, but for Adam, there was not a helper found fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took out one of his ribs and closed up the place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken, he formed and made into woman and brought her to the man. And Adam's reaction, this is great. The man said, this at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she is taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and not ashamed. Okay, so you see in the creation of man and woman, we also see the first marriage and also the pronouncement of all future marriage. Man leave his father and mother, come together with his wife, the two become one flesh. And here in the garden, we see total vulnerability. Not an ounce of interpersonal frustration. We'll see that in just a second. But not naked and unashamed, right? The perfect marriage. So the first thing we need to see as we approach this topic of divorce and looking at the, the topic of marriage is that God is the divine author of marriage. God is the divine author of marriage. And everyone in this room knows that, but it's the difference between, like, yeah, I know that fact and blowing by it and really, really drinking in deeply the God of the universe designed, planned, wove together, and created marriage, installed marriage. The same divine hand that upholds the Milky Way has brought you together with your spouse. Let that sober you a bit. That must be our starting point. That must be our foundation in our view as Christians of marriage, especially in a society that views marriage as a light thing, that is primarily to satisfy your own happiness, that is primarily to meet your own needs, a view that is, by the way, very common in the church. How many times have we heard, well, I guess you guys wouldn't hear it, but in church discipline cases, when there's, there's, there's a really difficult marriage and people are contemplating divorce, we often hear, well, doesn't God want me to be happy? Surely God wouldn't want me married to this psycho for the rest of my life and be miserable and you know, those are always fun conversations, but, you know, Genesis 1 and 2, yeah, of course, we'll look at that in a second of God caring about your happiness, but primarily, God is the one designing and installing marriage, okay? That must be our foundation, seeing him as the divine author. In fact, as we'll look at in a little bit, Jesus is going to appeal back to this and give the very, very sobering statement, what God has joined together, no man dare separate. Okay, so 
what in this, just, just to kind of focus us a little bit, what are some of the main purposes of marriage? And I've listed a couple here. It's not necessarily an exhaustive list. But with this starting point that God is the designer of marriage, what, what does that tell us about his purpose in that very design? The first that I think that we see in Adam's instant reaction is enjoyment of your spouse. So does God care about your happiness? Yes, he does. Go read Song of Solomon and see how God has designed you to enjoy your spouse. Look at Adam's reaction. Yes, please. Okay, tired of naming all these animals. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Thank you, Lord, right? Okay, finally, I'm done looking, and here she is, right? You see that enjoyment. God cares about your happiness, but he is far, far more concerned about your eternal happiness than your temporal happiness. You see the difference there? So God, yes, absolutely cares about your happiness. It is a purpose of marriage. It's just not the main purpose. So what's another purpose that we see in the, in the scriptures? For the flourishing of his creation. Be fruitful and multiply. You can't multiply without marriage. You know, it's, it's hard. I, I deduced that myself. But to fill the earth and subdue it, you need marriage and babies to fill, right? You see that? So Part of marriage is to fill society, right? When you see divorce running rampant in cultures like we do in ours, you see just kind of the, the constant ripple effects that just bring more and more and more chaos and breakdown. Now, that doesn't mean if you're single, you can't fulfill the creation mandate. In fact, Paul's going to say in 1 Corinthians 7, you can probably do more work for the kingdom if you don't have a family to have to care about. Like, I would love to pray all the time, but my kids would starve uh, and so God wants me to feed my kids as well as pray. Uh, but single people can just pray all the time because they don't have starving kids, right? Uh, so number two, to flourish, uh, God's creation flourishing. Number three, to reflect his character. That's part of what it means to be made in his image. As you're taking dominion over his good creation, you are in the image of God. You're meant to reflect his divine character. And then number four, in my mind, the primary reason for the creation of marriage is to reflect the infinite beauty and the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his redemption of his bride. Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And now the church submits, and now the church submits to Christ, so also the wife should submit, or wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loves his church and gave himself up for her, that she might be sanctified, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes, just as Christ has done the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Where's Paul getting that from? He's getting back from what we just looked at in creation. Leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers 
to Christ and the church. Your marriage is primarily to display the most glorious, beautiful, wonderful, unthinkable thing that could be displayed, which is Christ's redemption of you, his bride, his church. That is the primary focus of your marriage. Do you see how far that is from my spouse is here to make me happy? I see here a Savior who is doing nothing but self-giving, laying down his life that his spouse, the church, might be washed clean. Do you see how opposite that is to you're not meeting my needs, therefore I must look somewhere else to fulfill my own desires? Your marriage is meant to reflect the beauty, the mystery of this gospel. Do you have that view of marriage? Is that your starting point? Again, we all would believe, yeah, God made marriage. We all know that. Do you believe that? When you look at your spouse, do you, do you deeply in your soul know that? Do your actions reflect walking in that reality, that that is the primary reason of marriage, to reflect the glories of the gospel? So that's, that's God's heart for marriage. He's the creator of it. Uh, that's where we must start. And then... Uh, the, the ultimate buzzkill, Genesis 3, something happened, right? We had this glorious marriage in a glorious garden with a glorious couple, naked and unashamed, and then we see what we're going to look at next, which is the breaking of marriage. If Genesis 3 doesn't happen, this passage, Jesus doesn't need to address this, right? We don't need to talk about divorce if there's no Genesis 3, but Genesis 3 did happen. The serpent does come and tempt Adam and Eve. They rebel against God. Sin enters the world, brokenness runs rampant, and when God comes to Adam and says, did you eat of this fruit that I told you not to eat of? What's his response? Well, they're not naked and unashamed anymore, right? That woman you, you gave me, right? There's two guilty parties, you, her, right? All of a sudden, what do you see in the effects of sins? Relationship, marriage relationship, all of a sudden fractured, blaming one another, right? She's the one that's done it. And then, uh, though Adam and Eve don't get divorced, through that sin enters divorce into the world, which is why we're even having this conversation, something that mars and destroys God's beautiful design. So what is God's response? Genesis 3, what's his response? First of all, it, I think it's important to see God's heart, uh, which is, in, is most clearly revealed in Malachi 2. How does God feel towards divorce? You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards your offering or accepts it with favor from your hands. So there's these Israelites offering sacrifices to God. God's not accepting them. Why? Verse 14. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord has witnessed between you and, your wi- and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their union. And what was the one God seeking? A godly offering. So guard yourself in your spirit and let no one be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be Faithless. You see divorce happening rampantly in Israel. They're offering sacrifices. God is saying, no. They're saying, why not? And he's saying, you know why not. 
I have brought you together. I've given a portion of my spirit. My hands have brought your marriage together, and you are separating what I've got together. It's not an understatement, or it's not an overstatement to say God hates, hates divorce. We're at the foot of the Savior hearing this. God hates divorce. Hates divorce. He has brought man and woman together, and man has stepped in his place, the place of God, to separate, to separate his work. So that's his heart. We don't, I, don't, I don't want us to miss that, but we see his law all throughout the Old Testament. He condemns in Leviticus uh, frivolous divorce and adultery are both condemned in Leviticus 21. The, uh, the uh, condemnation of adultery is actually the death penalty. Uh, it's fine. We're never going to preach through Leviticus. Don't worry about that. Um, so frivolous divorce, adultery, both condemned. But again, what Josh read this morning, he is gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. And in Deuteronomy, the last piece of God's law, God gives law that actually takes into account man's sin and provides a pathway for there to be mercy in the midst of divorce. And so now we finally get to the passage that Jesus is actually quoting, that all of Israel is debating in Jesus' day. He says this, Deuteronomy 24. When a man takes his wife and marries her, if then she finds no, if she finds no favor in his eyes, notice this phrase, because he has found some indecency in her, and, she, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs from his house. Okay, so in Deuteronomy, there's something of some indecency is found, and the man gives a certificate of divorce and divorces her, sends her away. A couple things to notice here. Number one, a certificate of divorce, this sounds really weird to us, was actually an act of mercy. Because the punishment of adultery was so severe, death, stoning, if a woman were to come up to you as a single man and say, let's get married, he might be thinking, how do I know you're not already married and I'm going to accidentally get killed for this? She says, here's my certificate of divorce. Uh, I'm, I have no husband. We can get married. I'm not cheating on my husband because I don't have a husband anymore. He's given me this certificate of divorce. So it was actually a way of allowing uh, the, the divorced woman to remarry. And again, I understand that sounds strange to our ears, but it was meant to be a, an act of mercy. And then number two, that phrase, some indecency in her. That's the key phrase, some indecency of her. Here's the important question. What does that mean? <laughs> Right? It's like what I ask every time I read the Bible. That sounds great, God, but if you could tell me just a little bit more of what you actually mean, be real helpful. So this is a huge topic of debate in Jesus' day, which is why he's addressing this. Uh, in fact, there's two schools. In Jesus' day, there's rabbis, these teachers that would have followers. Jesus is a rabbi who has followers. Uh, and there were these schools who would debate, similar to how we have denominations debating you know, over different biblical passages, you have rabbis debating over Old Testament passages, especially this one, okay, especially this one. So there's two main debates happening in Jesus' day. One was uh, the school of Shammai, this, this rabbi who said his interpretation was some indecency, that, that, that clause there means some sort of sexual indecency, mainly adultery. That's what, that's what it means. If, if, if your wife commits adultery, you can give her a certificate of divorce. That's what some indecency means. There's another rabbi named Hillel, the school of Hillel, that actually Paul's mentor studies under, and he, he interpreted uh, some indecency to just mean any way your wife displeases you, right? So, honey, can you take out the trash? How about instead, here's a certificate of divorce because I'm tired, right? 
probably not that, but any way your wife uh, displeases you, which I actually think that's, I mean, I think that might be actually closer to what the Old Testament law means, not take out the trash and certificate of divorce. But I think he might be actually closer because there's already a penalty for adultery, death, not a certificate of divorce. But uh, this is a hot, hot, hot topic in Jesus' day. It's why Jesus is addressing this. It would have been in everybody's mind. And so with all that in the background, longest intro of all time, let's actually look at Jesus' answer of this, Jesus' answer for Divorce, the breaking of God's design for marriage. Let's read the passage again. It was also said, whoever divorced his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So there it is, Deuteronomy 24. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So what is Jesus's answer? What is Jesus revealing and showing the true intent of the law? The first thing uh, he is addressing here is, is the question of frivolous divorce. You want to divorce your wife? Oh, crowd listening to me, what do you typically do? You just give her a certificate, right, and walked off. Jesus is saying, but I say to you, you do that, you make her commit adultery. You do what you think the law is saying, what you think the law is saying, you sin. Okay, by the way, make her commit adultery. The reason it's phrased that way, it's assuming the spouse would get remarried and the act of remarriage would be the adultery because you've never actually divorced in God's eyes. You see that? So that's why the, the phrasing is there. So Jesus is saying, you think broad anything goes, you know, she just displeases you in any way. I heard Zach say years ago, she burns the biscuits, right? Certificate of divorce, right? You think it's this? Here's what I say to you. You do that. You make her commit adultery. You marry a divorced woman. You commit adultery. So the main thing, don't miss this. We're going to get to the, the, the sexual immorality question here in a second. But Jesus is primarily correcting their flippant view of divorce. Jesus is primarily correcting their flippant view of divorce. They are treating marriage and divorce like some sort of light thing. And he is correcting and pointing back to God's intent. You want to end Divorce, give her a certificate of divorce, and you're done. But I say, sin. And in fact, in nine years, when we get to Matthew 19, we're going to see this uh, topic brought up again. Uh, maybe not nine, maybe seven. Uh, Jesus, rabbis are actually going to come to him and debate him over this very passage. And Jesus is going to elaborate a little bit more. So let's just jump ahead. They, they show up and say, Hey, here's the law. Moses says we can divorce and give a certificate of divorce. And Jesus says this in Matthew 19, 8. Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But it was not, but from the beginning, it was not so. What's Jesus pointing to? Creation. From the beginning, it was not so. He's appealing back to the first thing we looked at: God's heart of marriage, Matthew 19, 6. Therefore, what God has joined together, man does not separate. Let not man separate. So Jesus going back to God's heart and creation for marriage. What the creator does, the creation does not dare undo, is what he's saying. Okay, so this is in stark contrast to his culture, and it is in unbelievably stark contrast to our culture where, again, we have just a flippant, light view of 
marriage to serve our own happiness. You know, we, we often use phrases like, I fell out of love, which I heard one pastor say, that's like saying you fell out of shape, right? You just stopped working at it and then just blamed the, the cosmos for falling out of love as if that's really a thing. It's not a thing. Uh, and Jesus, again, is going back to, God is the one who's done this. So you don't undo it. God's intent. Yes, Moses allowed you to uh, give a certificate of divorce because of your hardness of heart, but that's not God's good design. It wasn't so from the beginning. God's good design was one man and one woman together as long as life lives for the flourishing of his creation, for the reflection of his name, and ultimately for the reflection of his gospel. See what Jesus is doing here. Now, here's the key question that we're all wondering. You're like, you literally have skipped over the majority of the verse, unless sexual immorality, right? There's that clause. Let's just read verse 32 again. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So what, again, here's the question, what does that mean? What does that mean, except on the grounds of sexual immorality. First thing it's important to say, this is not Jesus showing like a way to navigate out of your marriage. Sometimes we treat this as just, oh, here's the escape clause. And so I don't like them. And they cheated on me. Good. Okay. Now I can get out of this marriage uh, that I don't want. Again, Jesus is going, Jesus is always going to point back to God's good design of staying together. He's, but there might be, here's the question. Is there a time where divorce is permitted, not encouraged, not the best option, but is there a time where it's not sin? Is there a time where it is permitted? Uh, and to understand this, we have to actually look at some Greek words. I, I usually never do that. Uh, Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, said, give your people a loaf of bread, not a field of wheat. So I'd never conjugate Greek words with you guys, but I kind of have to in this part because it's, it's essential to the whole thing. The word for sexual immorality is the Greek word porneia, which what English word comes from that word? Pornography? No. No, yeah, it's pornography. Uh, it's it's uh, porneia. Yeah, it's where we get the word pornography. Uh, it is a, a general word for sexual sin. It's almost like an umbrella word that a bunch of different sexual sins could fit underneath. Uh, and depending on the context, the context kind of determines the meaning. So there's times where porneia means adultery. There's also times where porneia means fornication, premarital sex. Right? So depending on the context kind of determines the meaning. So here's the great debate of our time. There are two views of what Jesus means here, of if he is permitting divorce. And a lot of it centers around that word porneia. So let me preface this by saying both of these views would say divorce is never the best option. Reconciliation is always the best option. The question is, is it permitted? And here's, here's what even makes it more complex. This is why the Bible's hard. Number one, let's read Mark together. Let's pretend all we have is Mark. Let's read Mark. Jesus gets asked about divorce. He says this. And Jesus says to them, because of your hardness of heart, you wrote this commandment. I mean, their certificate of uh, divorce. He wrote this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Therefore, uh, they will no longer be two but one flesh, what God therefore has joined together, let no man separate. End of talk. So in Mark, there's nothing about sexual morality. There's just, nope, don't divorce. Okay. What about Luke? That's a great question. Uh, Luke 16, 18. 
Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. He who marries a woman uh, divorced from her husband commits adultery. Nothing about sexual morality, right? So if you're just if you just have Mark and Luke, there's no, there's never a mention of divorce. There's never grounds for divorce if you just have those two gospels. But here in Matthew five and in Matthew nineteen, we see that clause except on the grounds of sexual immorality. And so in these debates, this is called the Matthean exception. Because Matthew's the only one who has said anything about it. So that's what we're wrestling over, that and the, the use of porneia. So finally, two views. I'll give, you, I'll give you both of them. The first view, which is kind of the historic Protestant uh, view of divorce and remarriage, is uh, divorce, and rem- or divorce and remarriage is never the ideal, but divorce is permitted if there is physical adultery, Okay. So permitted, not encouraged, again, but permitted. So they would say porneia in this context means physical adultery like it means in a bunch of other contexts. And the idea here is when you commit adultery, you have created another one flesh union. Marriage is both a covenant and consummation, right? The two become one flesh. And when you do that with another, the idea is you sever the previous one flesh union. So uh, that's the idea behind it here. Adultery is creating another one flesh union, severing the previous one. Therefore, divorce, though not encouraged, is permissible, is not sin. And they would also say Luke and Mark are assuming this. Since everyone would have had the view of marriage that adultery severs a previous marriage, Luke and Mark don't need to elaborate. That's what this view says. So divorce could be permitted, not required, on the grounds of physical adultery. And therefore, if your divorce is permissible, remarriage would also be permissible. That's view number one. That's kind of the historic Protestant view. Uh, There's another view that's even more conservative. And you guys are like, what? Conservative? I love that word. Yes, conservative. Uh, They would say porneia means fornication. Fornication, premarital sex. And you're like, okay, well, what does that have to do with divorce? Right? Engaged couples don't get divorces. Well, in Jewish culture, the engagement period, the betrothal period, is taken almost as seriously as marriage. It is incredibly serious. Let me give you an example that all of you are very aware of, um, uh, of our Savior's earthly mother and father, Mary and Joseph, uh, Matthew 1, 18. I don't think I have a slide for this. But now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed, right, engaged to Joseph, before they came together, so they haven't consummated the marriage, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So they're engaged, not married, haven't consummated. Mary becomes pregnant. Joseph has a conclusion that I think would be, is a fair one. Adultery has happened. Fornication has happened, right? In the betrothal, in the engagement period. And so he seeks to, what does the passage say? Divorce her quietly. You see that? So the second view says that's what Jesus is talking about. During this engagement period, which everyone listening to him would have taken very seriously, if your engaged spouse cheats on you, commits adultery, then you are allowed to divorce her or not marry her. Again, Joseph wanted to divorce her Quietly. So if you hold this view, there is no divorce, right? No grounds for divorce or remarriage. It would never be permitted uh, unless an unbelieving spouse abandons you, which we talked about in 1 Corinthians 7. And theologically, this you would also say, if our marriage, 
is meant to reflect the gospel. We commit adultery on him every day, and he never leaves us. And so how can we say, if my spouse commits adultery, then I can leave them, right? Surely there's no grounds for divorce and remarriage. So that's the second view. It's much more conservative. It is an extreme minority in church history. Uh, Famous guys that hold this are, uh, by the way, that doesn't mean it's wrong. Martin Luther and Justification by Faith, when he starts saying stuff like that, is an extreme minority, but he was just Biblical, right? He was just right about it. Uh, so guys like John Piper hold this uh, view. In fact, I found this quote from him that I thought was funny because he knows it's a, a minority, and this is what he says. Uh, I don't think the Bible allows for divorce and remarriage ever while the spouse is still living. That's my radical, crazy, conservative, narrow, hard-nosed, very needed view in our divorce-happy culture. So view number two would say divorce never permitted, or they would just strongly say what God brings together, let no man separate ever, right? It's never permitted. Jesus is talking about when you're engaged, right? Jesus doesn't leave us, therefore we don't leave our spouse. Now, this is hard. This is complicated. There's reasons why uh, 2,000 years of church history haven't figured, you know, most of the stuff out. And I was listening to one uh, professor at uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, Tom Schreiner, just say, this is why God gave us elders, Right, to really wrestle and think through these things because each case is going to be really, really, really difficult. Um, so uh, both, again, would never say it's the ideal uh, that there should be reconciliation, but the historic view would say if there's physical adultery, divorce is permissible. View number two would say never, right? Never, never permissible. Now, there's more. Oh, my goodness. What a horrible, horrible sermon we're walking through. Uh, there's more. Today, over the last 10, 10 years-ish, because of just extreme cultural pressure, uh, like Me Too movement, because of just the rampant expressive individualism that goes throughout our day, again, the primary thing is my happiness and my needs being met. Uh, There is new, brand new views of divorce and remarriage that are kind of coming out uh, within evangelicalism that are stretching uh, the allowances for divorce. We have several blogs on this, by the way, and they're the most read blogs on our website and second place isn't close, which shows you kind of how much of a hot button thing this, in, this thing is in our culture. Uh, and they would say porneia is, is much more broad. It's more any kind of sexual sin. So pornography uh, is a form of sexual sin. Therefore, if it's egregious enough, it's grounds for divorce, to which my question is, how do you know if it's egregious enough? Do you go to your elders and say, this is what my husband watched, and they have to view it? I think that would cause more problems, personally. Uh, I've never you know, talked to anybody that holds this view, but I know there are the, you know, people who hold them. Uh, emotional abuse, physical abuse, because it is an offense against the body, it can somehow uh, be a, a, a sexual sin. So there's just a, a broadening to where just the, it's coming down to a, a lot more things. So historically, it's a very a classic view and a more conservative view in today. There is a much, much broader view. Now, let me just say, all of those things I just said, pornography, physical abuse, emotional abuse, are horrible, horrible, wicked things. If any of that is happening to you, please let us know. God sees it. We want to see it. If your spouse is abusing you, if your spouse is verbally abusing you, if you are an abuser, the just God of the universe sees every wicked word 
and he is a perfect judge. Not one slap will go unpunished. Let that settle in your mind. Those are horrible, wicked things that God will judge either by your repentance and the judgment is placed on his son or eternally on you. He will judge it. It is a horrible wickedness. But unfortunately, to put it in the category of divorce, I think goes a bit beyond the text. I think it stretches the text. In fact, I think what Jesus is fundamentally doing is saying, hey, everyone listening to me, you have too broad a view of divorce and remarriage. It's much more narrow, right? So it wouldn't make sense for him to be even broadening it more. In fact, in Matthew 19, again, we'll get there. When Jesus gives his view of divorce, whatever it is, the disciples' reaction is their jaws hit the floor and they say, I guess it's better not to marry, right? I guess it's better not to marry, right? So why would they have that reaction if Jesus is saying, it's broader than you think, right? He's saying it's much, much more narrow than you think. Again, we have blogs on these if you want to dive more. I know that's real close to home stuff. And so online, you can uh, look on our website. Uh, so again, many in our day are, are widening. Uh, that's, that's really painful to watch. Can I encourage you? We live in the day of wokeness, and we live in the day of, of just, again, expressive individualism, very much in the church. Can I encourage you, when that happens to churches and pastors that you love, let your reaction be charity. Just be, be, be soft. Let your heart break a little bit, and let it move you to prayer rather than mocking. We're the truth people. We love truth, and there's a tendency for us truth people to, when people drift away from truth, to mock, scoff, and pat ourselves on the back that we're still holding the line. Let me just, that's, that's not the heart of your Savior. He flips tables, but before he goes into Jerusalem, he weeps and says, oh, Jerusalem, how I longed to take you under my wing, but you wouldn't have it, right? See the broken heart before the rebuke and reflect it, okay? Don't just say, well, cancel, you know, that, pa- that pastor's gone, right? They're trying to be faithful as well, and they're just misguided, so pray for them. Right? Correct in love, uh, rebuke with gentleness, all those kind of things. So those are, that's, that's the debate right? over divorce and remarriage. Jesus is uh, saying it's much more narrow because God is, God's plan for this is so much more glorious than what we so often have in our minds. Of, again, it's it, it just here to serve my own happiness. Jesus is saying, no, it's here to reflect my Father, and it's here to reflect my gospel. So there's his answer. We, by the way, have elders that kind of fall in between those two views, those two conservative uh, views that there's uh, no allowance and that on the case of adultery, it is permissible. But that's Jesus' answer. Uh, again, calling back to God's heart for marriage. I, think, uh, I know a bunch of you are like, you just confused me like way, way more. Sorry. Uh, anyway, last section. Uh, Jesus, again, saying, what God brings together, let not man separate. There may be a time where it's permissible uh, on the case of physical adultery. Even that's debated. And the final question that I just, I feel we all have is, okay, well, what if? What if I've already done that? What if I've done it? What if I've been divorced and remarried and, and committed adultery like he said? What if I violated his, his words, what if I've uh, done the very thing? He's showing the true intent of the law, and that just shows me that I've already broken it. And again, you can feel the shame begin to weigh you down. So again, I want to remind you who your Savior is. This sermon is meant to crush you. Sermon meaning the Sermon on the Mount, and it's meant to point you to the one giving it as the one who must lift you up. 
He has come. He's here in Matthew because he's come for his bride knowing she needs to be washed. He doesn't come and he's like, let me just check on God's creation. Whoa, I didn't know it was this bad, right? For God so loved the horrible, sinful, wicked, rebellious world. He sends his son. For the joy set before him, he endures the cross. He's going and he's buying his bride. Your sin is a prerequisite for his arrival and his redemption. If you feel shame, know that he feels no shame of you. There's no scarlet letters with him. There's just a glorious bride presented in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way that Adam's bride was taken from his side and formed, Jesus' bride comes from his pierced side. He knows he's going to go die for divorced sinners and undivorced sinners. That's why he's here. Don't forget who's talking to you when the shame begins to creep in. The story of the gospel is creation, beautiful creation, consummation, covenant, adultery, and then redemption, and then a glorious, glorious, eternal wedding that we'll see in Revelation. The Bible starts with a wedding, Adam and Eve. We looked at that earlier. How does the Bible end with a wedding? with a wedding feast. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and and a sound like a mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted for her to clothe herself with fine linen and bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Revelation 21, two chapters later. Just a glimpse into your eternity if you know Jesus. Then I saw the new heavens and the new earth for the first Heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven or out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with him, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear. From their eyes. Death shall be no more. And there will be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. If you know this Savior, the one talking to you, that's a glimpse into your eternity. I can think of no greater redemption of your broken marriage, your divorce, than an eternal, glorious, spotless, with no pain marriage to the Savior. If you know him, you've been invited. Blessed are those who have been invited. You have been invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb as his bride, and he will never leave you or forsake you. He has laid his life down for you. He's the ultimate self-giver. He's the ultimate self-giver that he might present 
us washed, blameless, and glorious. So if you're single, serve the kingdom with all your might. No starving kids, praise the Lord. Pray your head off. Serve the kingdom with all your might. Value and promote marriage with all your might. If you're married, display the glory of this gospel of Christ and his bride with your marriage. Lay your life down for your spouse rather than trying to get life from your spouse. Fight for your marriage, not even primarily because you will be actually happier, but because of what your marriage declares to the world. And if you're divorced, if you haven't repented, repent. There is a merciful Savior waiting for you. And if you have repented, just rest. There's no scarlet letters with him, only joy, only joy. Turn to him and let, you fill, let him fill you with joy. And if you're a Christian, so I'm single, divorced, remarried, I think that's all of them, just in case. If you're a Christian, live every day in light of Revelation 19. Live today, live every day of your life in light of the glorious wedding feast you have been invited to, where you will gaze into his face for all eternity. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a people who display truth and display the gospel, but we're simultaneously justified and sinners, and so we want to be a people who walk by grace. Perhaps the best way to display that our marriage reflects the gospel is in our constant clinging to your son, our constant bringing others in, saying we need help of killing this ridiculous idea that we're somehow presenting that we've got everything together so that other people will think that we're holy rather than displaying actual holiness by saying, I have nothing but Christ's righteousness, and that's what we have. But that's what we're clinging to with both our hands. I just pray that the crafty enemy would, you would shut his mouth and the voice of your spirit would be infinitely stronger, that you would minister to our hearts and that we would see marriage as glorious because you designed it and it's because what, it's, it's what our eternity is, that we would see the beauty of marriage that you, in, in writing your word, thought, what's the best picture I can give of the glories of eternity and you chose marriage? And I pray that we would soberly see that and that we would rejoice. We would be the woman who sprints back into the city and says, I found the Messiah. He's told me everything I've ever done. There's no more shame. He's, he's somehow taken it all. And all I can do now is point others to him. You do that in our hearts, Father. We beg you to do that in our hearts. In the name of your Son, Jesus, amen.